Would you turn with me this evening to 1 Timothy chapter 6? 1 Timothy 6. Tonight is the second last study in our series, Building a Healthy Church. And we're going to read the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. The veteran apostle Paul continues his instruction to Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus. Here is what Paul writes to him. 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 to 10. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. But if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think, that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now we're going to just pray together and ask for God to give us his help as we come to to preach and to hear. Father, we thank you that as we are reminded in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Thank you to God for that promise where you've said that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work through the word. Father, we pray tonight that you will better equip us, particularly, Lord, in the way that we work, And in the way that we handle money, help me, help us all as we hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in February, the American preacher, John Piper, preached a sermon entitled, What is the Recession For? It was a surprising question to some people because it seemed to suggest that there might be a purpose 
in the painful pinch of the current financial crisis. But what Piper was asking was this. What might God's purposes be in and through such a recession? I wonder if you can think of any answers yourself this evening. Here was one of Piper's answers. God intends to relocate the roots of our joy in his grace rather than in our goods, in his mercy rather than in our money, in his worth rather than our wealth. For you see, in a materialistic society such as we live in, our goods, our money, our possessions and things so easily do become our gods before we perhaps even realize it. It is no longer the gospel, but our goods and possessions that have become the ground of our assurance. The recession, says Piper, therefore may actually be a good thing because it may wake us up to the fact that our confidence is currently placed in the wrong place. Now, if that is true of me, if that is true of you, at least to some extent, then the passage we are considering this evening has great significance. Because as we look at what Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, we discover that what he is discussing is the related themes of work and wealth. In these first ten verses of chapter 6, it is this matter of the way that we work and the wealth that we accrue by that work, which is Paul's focus. Now, while these mega-themes are pretty clear to anyone reading the passage, it's actually not the easiest uh, section to distill down into a nice three-point sermon. The way I'm going to attempt to do it this evening is to focus on three groups of people whom Paul puts the spotlight on. Three groups of people. While Paul discusses these three groups, he highlights the themes of work and wealth. We're going to begin in verses 1 and 2 with group number 1. Group number 1 we shall call contemptuous workers. Contemptuous workers. You'll, you'll see why I call them contemptuous in just a moment. But if you look at verse 1, you'll see the kind of workers Paul has in mind. All those under the yoke of slavery. Now, some background here is essential for our study. We need to know something about slavery in the first century. And perhaps the most important thing we must realize is that it was commonplace. Historians tell us that somewhere around 50 million slaves existed within the Roman Empire at this time. That translates into something like one-third of the population in large cities such as Rome or Ephesus to whom Paul was writing. And so it's hardly surprising, is it, that, it, that as Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, that A, there should be slaves within this church, and B, that Paul should have something to say to those slaves. I think it is worth saying that many of these Greco-Roman slaves 
were not as ill-treated as you might first suspect. Many slaves uh, had very meaningful jobs. Uh, We do know from uh, certain uh, writings that we have that some indeed had positions of authority, uh, both in the home and also in the community. Uh, Some were given a very good education. Uh, Most were well-treated in physical terms. After all, it's not a good idea to ill-treat your workforce. Another fact I discovered this week, which was uh, new to me, was that almost 50% of slaves were freed by the age of 30. In other words, freedom was a very real possibility in the Greco-Roman world. It was rather uncommon to find an old slave. Now, despite all of these caveats, we have to say that slavery was, as it is, a dehumanizing practice. I think Paul recognizes this. We notice it by the way that he describes it. Look at what he calls it. It is the yoke, verse 1, of slavery. Typically, it is an animal, an oxen, that is placed under a yoke. It is wrong. It is arduous. It is animalistic. For a human being to be placed under a yoke, especially since we are made in the image of God. I think that's why Paul over in 1 Corinthians 7 does there emphatically say that if a slave has the opportunity for freedom, he should take his chance. But even the Apostle Paul has to be realistic. He knows that slavery is an embedded uh, practice in the Roman Empire. He knows that most people thought that slavery was essential to the economy of the Roman Empire. And for this reason, slave uprisings were quelled with brutal force. This was not an institution that would change overnight. And therefore, what did you do if you were a slave waiting on the tide to turn? How should you work for your slave master? Should you disrespect them? Should you show contempt towards them? Well, Paul is very clear about what they should do in verse 1, isn't he? All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full contempt. That's not what he says. Full respect. Full respect. Isn't that interesting? They are to consider. That is, they are to make a rational and determined judgment. And they are to consider their masters. And notice Paul doesn't specify what kind of masters they are. He doesn't say they have to be nice masters. He doesn't say they have to be Christian masters. They could be pagan and they could be brutal. But Paul says they are worthy of full respect. The word is literally full honor. And it's the same word used back in chapter 5 on two occasions. You recall that Paul had had said there that the widow who was in real need should be treated with honor. You remember as well that he had said of of the elder who served well within the fellowship, they are worthy of double honor. And now Paul says the way that you would treat your pastor, the way that you would treat that most needy member is the same kind of honor that you should show to your pagan master. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul then uh, adds something to this in the second verse. 
because he's obviously aware that there's maybe a specific problem within the Ephesian church. Because from the general, speaking about masters in verse 1, he now goes on to talk about Christian masters in verse 2. Reading between the lines, it was probably the case that some slaves who were Christians were showing contempt towards their Christian masters. And so Paul addresses this. And he says that those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. You can just imagine uh, the kind of situation that would give rise to this, couldn't you? You have uh, this Christian slave and his Christian master, and they attend the same church on a Sunday. And they sit under the same teaching. And what is the teaching that they hear? Well, it's things such as this, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. That in Christ there is no slave or free. Isn't that what Paul taught the Galatian church? And so the slave would say, this is an interesting idea. He would go back to his day job and he would choose on that basis not to respect his boss. After all, his boss is just his brother. He's no longer really a master to be respected. But the apostle is very clear here that the very opposite should be true. In fact, he actually takes their logic and he turns it back upon them. He says, yes, it's true uh, that this master is a brother, that this master is a fellow believer, and all the more reason for you to treat him with respect. What is it he says in verse 2? Those who are believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. Now this is perhaps a very specific application to a few people scattered around the congregation this evening. Maybe it is the case that you work specifically for a Christian employer. I wonder how that affects your attitude as you come into the workplace on a Monday morning. Maybe you've worked before and very well for a non-Christian boss. I wonder if you work just as well for your Christian boss. How sad it is to hear uh, those who manage in in firms who are Christians say, I never employ Christians as a matter of principle. You say, why on earth would you do that? You're a Christian and they're a Christian. And they say, that's exactly the problem. Every time I employ a believer, they think that because I'm a believer, they can get away with murder. The non-Christians do a better job. It's a scandal, isn't it? Now, I guess that's not the situation for most of us because the vast majority here who are employed are working for unbelieving bosses. And yet, how different we two can be if we apply verse 1. Many of us are not working under the kind of brutal dictators that these slaves were. How different we can be if we treat our bosses with full honor in this day of insubordination in the workplace, in this time when the commonplace thing to do on the, on the break time is to run down the management. What a difference we can be if we are not contemptuous employees. Now, if you're looking for a reason for this, because maybe your boss is terribly difficult, then here's a little word of encouragement for you, because Paul adds in here, the motivation for it. You notice this in verse 1. 
He says that there is an evangelistic motive in this. I should respect my boss, says Paul, so that God's name and the teaching may not be slandered. There's a twofold purpose, to honor God's name and to honor the teaching, that is, of the gospel. It is for this reason that we consider our, body, our, our bosses worthy of full respect. Because if we don't, our God and his gospel will be slandered. Philip Towner, uh, the biblical scholar, speaks of a time shortly after his conversion. He was serving uh, in the military in England. And he and a few other friends had recently come to faith in Christ. Listen to this confession he makes from around this time. In our enthusiasm to serve Christ, we somehow concluded that we didn't need to concern ourselves with mundane rules about shine boots and clean press uniforms. Our superiors, his boss, quickly made the connection between our new faith and our sloppy appearance. And in that small corner of the world, Christianity was in danger of being linked with insubordination. You see, our non-Christian bosses make the link, don't they? They make the link between our attitude to them and what that says about the God that we profess to worship and the gospel that we proclaim to them over the lunch hour. It's quite a challenging thing to put to you this evening. But if I were to go this week to your non-Christian boss and say, what do you make of Christianity based on the attitude of so-and-so Christian? I wonder what they would say to that. Would they say they are a pleasure to work with? There is something different about that person that is unusual. Or would they say their God and their gospel can't be up to much if their attitude is anything to go by. It's a heavy-heading challenge, isn't it? The way we work is a witness. Our, our witness is not restricted to an hour leading on a Christianity Explored course. The prime place for most of our witness happens five days a week and eight hours a day. Are we contemptuous workers? If we are, we need to repent of that for the sake of becoming better witnesses, so that this church can be a better light and a brighter light in this community of Edinburgh. Now, we must, uh, must push on, because there's a second group that Paul now turns to. Uh, from contemptuous workers, he turns, secondly, to covetous teachers. Covetous teachers. We're going to see here that there's a link, particularly relating to the money theme now, which comes more to the fore uh, and toward the end of the passage. Now, the reformer John Calvin, who had to deal with a fair share of heretics, uh, once said this, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving off the wolves. I think in verses 1 and 2, Paul is using his gentler voice. He is correcting, certainly, the Christian slaves, but he's doing it in a very gentle and subtle way. But as we come to verses 3 to 5, you notice that Paul adopts his stern voice. 
the apostle. It's amazing, isn't it, as you read the New Testament. Sometimes he can be so gentle and so expressive of his love, and the next minute he seems so forceful. The apostle's frank speech bluntly here addresses a group whom he describes in unequivocal terms as corrupt and as conceited. Paul was never soft-spoken when it came to false teachers. Now, we've come across them several times in the letter, and admittedly, some of what Paul says is not new. For example, he begins by saying that corrupt teachers deviate from sound instruction. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we, earlier in the letter. Paul made almost an identical point way back in chapter 1, verse 3 where he said, similarly, that a false teacher is one who teaches false doctrines, or literally different doctrines, that don't agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he says in chapter 1, verse 3, he comes full circle at the end of the letter, he comes back to it again in chapter 6, verse 3. It's a reminder again to us that spotting deviant doctrine is a little bit like playing spot the difference. You remember playing spot the difference, don't you? You put one picture up next to the other. They look kind of similar. But as you look carefully, you begin to notice things that are not quite the same in the second picture. And Paul says, if you like, that as we put the gospel of Jesus and all the facts of it in terms of his godhood and his manhood, of his crucifixion for our sins, of his resurrection from the dead, as we put these on the one picture, and then as we line up the false teacher's doctrine, we spot significant differences. They deviate from sound instruction. It doesn't sound the same, and it is not the same. Paul also has a few fresh words to say about them too. And this is really his final salvos. He he really lets the guns uh, go here. He says that these teachers demonstrate pompous ignorance. He is, such a false teacher, verse 4, conceited and understands nothing. I like the way one translation puts it. He is a pompous ignoramus. That's what Paul's saying. The corrupt teacher has a big head, says Paul. And sadly, there ain't too much in that big head. It's big and it's empty. The know-it-all actually knows little or nothing. And it makes sense because if you have forsaken the truth, then all that is left is vacuous nothingness. And yet, although he may be self-important and stupid... Paul is clear, and he doesn't underestimate the carnage that a corrupt teacher can make within any fellowship of Christians. Verses 4 and 5 describe graphically how such a teacher divides the church of Christ. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies. You know, he's the kind of guy that's always going around the church picking a fight with someone over some theological issue. He loves quarrels about words. And what is the result around the fellowship? Well, there's envy, there's strife, there's malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. That's what these men cause in a church, constant friction and tension between people. Sometimes people mistakenly say that doctrine divides. Paul doesn't agree with that. He says false doctrine divides. The truth is something we can unite around. If we don't have a truth to unite around, we won't be a united church in any sense. But false doctrine, on the other hand, always divides a congregation. 
When someone teaches falsehood, they inevitably cause fallout. I can't think of a single situation, and perhaps you can't either, of where someone has been teaching falsehood within a church fellowship where it hasn't caused strife and division. It always causes disastrous consequences. Now, it's at the end of verse 5, however, that Paul brings us to the lowest point in his discussion of the corrupt teacher. And I think in this, this is really the, the, the bottom of the barrel, as it were, of everything Paul says in the letter about them. He saves this to last. Because he says that this corrupt teacher is also at root a covetous teacher. He's the kind of teacher who desires money. Paul reiterates this three times over. In verse 6, he thinks that godliness is a means to financial gain. Godliness is not an end in itself, but it's a means to something else. And what is it a means to? It's it's a means to money. I believe he also refers again in verse 9 to the false teacher when he says, people who want to get rich. I think that's another jibe at them once again. They want to get rich, these guys. And then in verse 10, after he says the famous uh, quote, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Paul then adds, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Who is Paul talking about here? Well, presumably the same people who want to get rich in verse 9. Who are presumably the same people who who think that godliness is a means of financial gain in verse 6 who are also the same people who are teaching deviant doctrine in verse 3. Now, we are not told exactly how these false teachers sought out financial gain. We don't know what their ruse was. We don't know what the money-making schemes were in terms of their ministry. Uh, In the modern day, maybe it's through uh, selling uh, wares and whatnot of books and, and so on. Probably they didn't have that kind of thing around then. Paul just gives the bare fact that they were in it for the money. And it may seem a strange thing to some of you. Uh, Maybe to others it doesn't seem strange, if you've watched certain Christian TV channels, that, that, that people would be in ministry for money. Charles Spurgeon, in his book, Lectures to My Students, writes how strange it would be for a, to hear a man say, I am a servant of the Most High God, and I will go wherever I can get the most salary. I am called to labor for the glory of Jesus only, and I will go nowhere unless the church is of the most respectable standing. For me to live is Christ, but I cannot do it for under 500 pounds per annum. Strange it may be, Spurgeon, but sadly not unheard of. True, those who serve well, Paul has said back in chapter 5, verse 17, are are worthy of financial remuneration. But remuneration itself should never be the motive that is driving a ministry. God help the pastor who accepts or, or rejects speaking invitations. Never mind a call to a church based on the crass basis of monetary considerations. God help the shepherd who seeks to fleece the flock. Such a man or a woman is on the road to ruin. The disastrous results are painted very clearly in verse 10. 
wandering from the faith. This is somebody probably preaching God's word, or at least a kind of half version of it, and yet Paul says they've actually wandered from the faith. They're not headed, headed for a secure eternity. Moreover, in this life, they, are, they impale themselves with many griefs. They're a miserable person. And also, he gives a summary statement in verse 9 that they plunge, and the picture here of plunging is like a drowning man, they plunge into ruin and destruction. What a terrible picture. I, I, I don't imagine there probably is anybody here tonight in, visiting who's in pastoral ministry, so maybe this just speaks to one or two of us, but this is a particularly challenging portion of Scripture as we examine our attitudes to money and our motivation in ministry in relation to it. To what extent is money my motive? We had uh, Don Carson here, who's a quite a well-known evangelical speaker, a couple of years ago, and one of the things he said I was very impressed by, and this is a guy, he, he gets invitations to all sorts of huge churches and huge conferences, and he can't go to all of them. How would you decide which ones to go to? And he said that early on in his ministry, he had decided that he would never reject or accept an invitation to a church based on the size of the church. And that's why if you search around the net, you'll find tiny little churches with 50 you know, to 100 people in them where Don Carson has gone and spoken. Because he's not in it for the grandeur. He's not in it for the money that he gets from the big church when he goes. I remember I preached uh, in a particular place some time ago, preached on a couple of occasions, and for a number of weeks afterwards, I didn't receive any any remuneration. And I remember sort of thinking to myself for a moment, uh, this was not very helpful. And uh, it really struck me, as I really thought about that, what am I in this for? Is that why I'm in it? Is that why I sometimes say yes when I feel I don't have the time? The end of that story was the check came through a couple of weeks later. But, it, but maybe one of the reasons that it was withheld in God's providence was to make me think about that. Pastor, do you have that kind of integrity? If you're a pastor or a would-be pastor. And a word to the church here. The application here is not, uh, don't uh, pay pastors any money, don't give anything to visiting speakers. Uh, I, but I think the... The thing here is that we must be aware that there are some, sadly, who are in ministry for financial reasons. There's a, an interview I read a couple of weeks ago that was about how to get a Christian book published and, and to sell well. And it told of how a man went with a manuscript to a big publisher and said, uh, I think I've got something worth saying here. And he said, have you got an advertising budget of over a million dollars? If you don't, you've got no chance. And what you don't realize is that some of the, the kind of products that make it to the top of the charts, not all of them, are there because they've been heavily marketed. Millions of dollars, which then makes millions of dollars. Now, it doesn't mean to say that everything that you read or everything that sells well is in that category. But some of it is. It was around in Paul's day, those who were really in it to make it, 
and it's still around today. And we must be also those who are very aware of the doctrine that we are hearing, not only from the pulpit, but from the many other proliferation of sources that there are today. Many of the strange ideas no longer have to come from someone up in here. You can protect Charlotte Chapel's pulpit, but it doesn't protect the congregation who are listening to all sorts of stuff on the internet and reading all sorts of things. And so as a congregation, we must be aware to the kind of stuff we're hearing. Does it line up with what is in this book? If you're not sure about it, go to a mature Christian and ask them, I heard this on the God channel this week. It doesn't seem quite right to me. Could you take me to the Bible and show me what does it say on this matter? Well, these are the covetous teachers that Paul addresses. Contemptuous workers, firstly. Covetous teachers. But thirdly, and finally, he moves on to contented believers. And what a contrast this group is to the covetous teachers. While the covetous teacher is obsessed with money, the Christian believer is not to be obsessed. That's why in verses 6 to 8, Paul makes this little discursus. Having identified those who love money, the apostle maps out a better way for us. So let's look at what he says, because this is such a significant issue, particularly in the credit crunch times that we live in. The principle he establishes is in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, you remember the covetous teacher. His problem was that he thought that godliness was a means to something else. It was a road to the money pot. But Paul now says here that godliness, in fact, is an end in itself. It is not just a means to gain, it is gain. Back in chapter 4, verse 8, the apostle had explained that godliness has value for all things, bringing blessing both to this life and the next. Godliness has value for the years of time. Unlike the false teacher, it will ensure that you don't wander from the faith. Unlike the person that takes that path, if you follow this, you will be joyful in the Lord. You won't be impaled by all the griefs and so on. And not only has godliness value for the years of time, but it also has value for eternity. Riches, you see, are useless currency in the economy of eternity. Godliness, however, is a necessary state in eternity, and it is a valuable one to be in as we live forever in the presence of God. You would think that godliness would be a good thing to be as you lived in the presence of God. Now, the godly person must take the long view, however, if they are to see this. And that's why Paul insists that godliness must have contentment as its companion. What is contentment? Contentment is that settled mind which is satisfied with what it has and which does not pang for what it doesn't have. Contentment is the very thing that our advertising industry mitigates against. You do realize that, don't you? That every single advert on television is designed to make you content. Turn it off and you won't feel so covetous anymore. Because that's what happens in my house. My wife goes away to make a coffee uh, while it's in the ad break. And by the time she comes back, I want a new car. Uh, Or whatever it is. 
because it's sown the, the discontent in my mind and in my heart. How easily the glass of our contentment is shattered in a society that promotes stuff. Now, if I am struggling with the pangs of discontent, then I must not only hear Paul's principle, but I must also understand the rationale that he gives behind it. Here's why it makes sense. Contentment is actually based on a logical premise. And the premise is very simple. You can't take your possessions with you. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Why am I fretting over the nicer car or the nicer house or the nicer shoes? Because I can't take them out of the world with me after I die. Can't resist quoting John Stott here. He says, in respect of earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. Our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. Never thought about that. He also says that possessions are the traveling luggage of time. They're just traveling luggage. Are we traveling light? Reminded of the story of uh, John D. Rockefeller's accountant, his famous one. Rockefeller was a billionaire, and when he died, a reporter asked his accountant, so how much is he leaving behind? And the accountant sharply replied, He's leaving everything. Or as an old Spanish proverb puts it, there are no pockets in a shroud. So if there are no pockets to put stuff in, then don't spend all of your days and all of your time trying to get stuff that you've got no pockets for. That's what Paul is saying here. And then he moves on to the practical. Because we say, okay, this is fair enough, Paul. <laughs> what does this actually mean? Are you saying we should have nothing? Are you saying we should have no houses, no clothes, no possessions at all? No. Here's what Paul says in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I'm very interested to note here that Paul says that there are some things that we do need to be content. The person who doesn't have enough food for their stomach and the person that doesn't have enough clothes to be warm has no right to feel content. We need these things to feel content. They are a bare minimum. Paul recognizes that. But then he says, and it is very radical, that actually beyond these things, we can be content. Some of us are saying, Paul, are you real? That's an awfully minimum amount. What I eat every week and some clothes for my back. But that's because we, we've made luxuries necessities. Reading a biography just now of Hudson Taylor. And he speaks of having arrived in China a couple of hundred years ago and living on, on less than he had previously done in the UK. In fact, I was amazed at this. He, he lived so light that he saved up two-thirds of his income to give away to the church and, and the mission that he was involved in. He lived on a third of his income. It's radical, isn't it? Most of us think in terms of the minimum that we can give to God's work. Hudson Taylor thought in terms of the minimum that he could live on so that he could give away the rest. I wonder if your life and mine, I wonder if your purchasing patterns and mine evidence a contentment. 
or a covetousness in our hearts. Maybe we've been cutting back in recent days uh, on various items. Uh, Maybe the fancy television package has gone to the wall or uh, the fancy holiday, the overseas uh, nice trip has gone. And maybe we're moping around this summer. We're a bit grumpy about the fact that we're just going to air. (laughs) Maybe God is using this situation to show up the covetousness of our hearts. In the words of John Piper, to relocate the roots of our joy in his grace rather than in our goods, and in his mercy rather than in our money, and in his worth rather than in our wealth. Because that's actually where it's often rooted, isn't it? In everyday life. In conclusion, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself why Christians are so busy. We're busy people, aren't we? In fact, it's one of the most common things that you hear in the lounge from people. The first is, I'm fine, when you ask them, how are you doing? And the second is, I'm busy, when you ask them what they've been doing. Tim Chester, in one of his books, has got a theory about this. This is what he writes. Christians can be the busiest people of all because we want it all. We have a foot in both camps. We have better things to do, kingdom things, gospel things. But we also want the trappings of the world. We work hard for treasure in heaven, but we also work for the treasure of earth. So we're running around twice as much as the pagans. I like that. And it's a generalization. And it's not true of everybody here this evening. And for some of you, this isn't a big issue of sin in your heart and in your life. But for some of us, including the preacher at times, it often is. And so let me, let me finish with a, with a challenging story that goes against the trend of the upward mobility that we many of us seek. Bob Holman was a professor of social policy at Bath University. And then he made the decision to downsize. He became a community worker in a socially deprived area of Glasgow. My motivation was complex, he told the Guardian newspaper, I wasn't much of a professor. I felt guilty about earning a large salary while lecturing on poverty. But the most important reason related to my understanding of Christianity. 25 years on from making the move was when they wrote this report in The Guardian. He commented on how much he had gained. I have benefited from being downwardly mobile. As an academic, I had colleagues whom I saw at work in social gatherings, but the relationships tended to be shallow and short-lived as one of us moved on to a higher position. Within deprived areas, I have been closer to people because we spend much more time with each other in the neighborhood where we live. I have enjoyed deep relationships that have given me love, support, and companionship. Downwardly mobile, eh? something to think about. Let's pray.